Morning, everyone. The Bible reading this morning is from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through to 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, folks. My name's Mark. If I haven't met you, welcome to church. Let me pray for us as uh, we look at this part of Luke's gospel together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christmas, and we thank you that it gives us a time each year to slow down and to remember the turning point of history, the arrival of your son Jesus into this world. Lord, as we begin looking at this story again this morning, please would you help us to see things afresh in your word. Remind us of your incredible love towards your creation, that you have come for us. It's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Uh, I don't know whether you've uh, sort of noticed this in recent years, but I think we have hit something of a historical cultural milestone recently uh, in that for the first time in years, we've reached a point, I think, where people are not quite sure whether the future is going to be better than the past. Now, that wasn't always the case. It might feel like it right now, but if you rewind the clock 50 years ago, everybody was pretty sure that the future was bright. A combination of, you know, democratic government and technology and globalization, well, that would just pave the way to a golden future for all generations. That was the popular belief, at least. Not so much today, though. Have you noticed that? Uh, there was a recent study I saw that uh, noted that the millennial generation, and my generation, actually think that they are worse off than their parents' generation. Such has not been the case for previous generations. Uh, it tells us, I think, that for a lot of people, the world today does seem hopeless to some degree. I wonder if you've felt the taste of that in 2023, the lingering presence of the global pandemic, 
economic instability, the rise of autocratic world leaders, climate change, international conflict. You know, th these days when you turn on the news, you are just expecting to hear the worst, aren't you? Wondering what the newest catastrophe is going to be. And that's to mention nothing of kind of the reality of our day-to-day -day lives, which for us as individuals often feels so hopeless and so broken as well. The, the daily grind of the commute, the disputes at work, the disputes at home, the reality of sickness, the reality of death. Perhaps on a personal level, you felt some of that hopelessness this Christmas season. For a lot of people, hope seems to be in short supply. And I think part of the problem is that it just doesn't seem like anybody can fix it. <laughs> Um, leaders, you know, they come and go, and at their best, they kind of muddle along, don't seem to make anything a whole lot worse, but at their worst, they really do complicate things, don't they? And if you just leave aside, you know, national and international political leaders for a minute, well, in our worlds, we all know that there are plenty of leaders in the workplace, in the industry, who let everyone down with their moral failure. And then even the option of trying to run things for ourselves, you know, I am the master of my own fate, I'm the captain of my own soul. Well, you give that a try and it, you find out pretty quickly that doesn't work out very well for yourself. It all seems a bit hopeless, a bit unable to be fixed. But we do yearn for it to be fixed, don't we? We are longing for someone who can come along and deal with the mess of this world and get us out of it. It explains, I think, why there has been in, such re in recent years such a rise in personality politics. We are just grasping at straws, hoping that the latest person to come along will fix this whole thing. Uh, a couple of years ago, the renowned pop artist Sam Smith released a song called Pray, uh, in which he sings about that longing for someone who can fix everything. He says this, I block out the news, turn my back on religion. I lift up my head and the world is on fire. There's dread in my heart and fear in my bones. I just don't know what to say. Maybe I'll pray. Pray. Pray for a glimmer of hope. Maybe I'll pray, he sings. Sam Smith, he feels the hopelessness of the world around him, but he doesn't know when to turn. And so instead he just resorts to this kind of wistful prayer to someone somewhere hoping for a solution. Now for us, maybe that's not the course of action we take. Maybe our course of action is to try and kind of desensitize ourselves to the hopelessness of the world. You know, we do things like binging on the latest Netflix release in order to sort of immerse ourselves in a narrative other than the one that we live in. Or maybe when it comes around to Christmas festivities, we, we indulge in food and drink and Boxing Day sales kind of as this morphine to numb the pain to what is eventually going to come back and stare us in the face in January. But you can't get away from it. Where do we turn to find hope in this hopeless world? Well, today, as Rod said, is the first of three messages over this Christmas series where we're going to walk through the story of the birth of Jesus as told in the Gospel of Luke. Luke, who writes this account of Jesus' birth, he's a doctor, he's got a science background, and he's a keen historian, we find out. And he wrote this account after doing a thorough investigation to discover the facts. And he wrote it so that we would know the truth about 
Jesus, to have certainty about him. And today, as we look at the beginning of this story, this true story, what we're going to see is, is that it is the beginning of the happiest story in the world, the only story where we can find hope. And so there's three observations I want to make as we read through this story together this morning. The first is that this is a story about promises kept, promises kept. Read with me again from uh, verse 26. Uh, Luke writes, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, Nazareth, as the camera zooms in, where this story takes place, it's a little town in the middle of nowhere. Nothing special ever happened in Nazareth. No one famous came from there. If you asked ancient Israelites to point to Nazareth on a map, most of them probably would have had a hard time doing it. And Mary, living in this nothing town, well, she's a nobody as well. Uh, she's still a virgin, we're told, which means she's likely still a teenager. And yet there's nothing else special about her. She has no status, no wealth, no power, no special lineage to speak of. She's just your run-of-the-mill teenage girl trying to enjoy life in Nazareth, of all places. And she is a Jew, which means that she lived under Roman occupation. Uh, her people were basically second-class citizens. And uh, half of her leaders uh, at the time were corrupt and in bed with Rome, and the other half were too lackluster to do anything about it. So her situation is pretty hopeless. And yet, it's to this nobody girl in a nowhere town that God steps in and gives some absolutely earth-shattering news. The angel says in verse 31 to Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. Now, this is obviously a little bit unusual, isn't it? <laughs> for God to show up and announce pregnancy. It's unusual, but it's not unprecedented, actually. In the Bible, there's several occasions where God does step into people's lives and make miraculous pregnancy announcements. For instance, Abraham and Sarah, God said to them, they're going to have a child, even though they were in their 90s. It happens, actually, earlier in Luke's gospel, just before the passage we're looking at today, where Elizabeth and Zechariah are told again that they are going to have a miraculous baby. But this pregnancy announcement here, it's a little bit different because this is not just any baby who's promised. Look at how the angel describes him in verse 32. It says that this baby will be the son of the Most High. The son of the Most High. Uh, I don't know if you were like me when you were a young child, uh, in that you wanted to boast about your dad. I think that's true for a lot of young children, you know. My dad's the boss of his company. My dad can hit the ball over the back of the driving range, you know, that kind of sense. There's, when you're young, there is something in you that makes you want to boast about your father being the strongest and the fastest and the smartest and the most successful dad out of all the dads that there are. And I guess the logic of, of young people when they do that is that, well, if my dad is great, then me, by extension, I must be pretty great too. <laughs> well, here is the angel saying to Mary that, the father of her son really is great. He, in fact, is the Most High. And that's just another name that the Bible uses for God. This is a promise here that Mary's boy is going to be none other than the Son of God. That is some pedigree, isn't it? This baby will be divine, fully God. 
And that is why the virgin birth is so significant. Can you see that Mary asks the question there in verse 34? She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel says in verse 35, well, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, if you're sitting there today and thinking, well, virgin birth, that just seems pretty far-fetched, doesn't it? And you're, you're shutting off. Well, let me just remind you of two things at this point, if this seems unbelievable. Number one, remember that this is Luke, the historian, who wrote this. He didn't deal in myth and fairy tale. He's writing facts here. But secondly, consider that if this baby really is the son of God, and I appreciate that that's a big if, then surely you would say that a miraculous entry into the world... Well, that would be expected, wouldn't it? You know, if someone wanted to prove to us that they were God, we would demand from them to do something that we as mere humans cannot do. And so actually, a virgin birth is a pretty clear way of demonstrating that you are operating on a whole other level from anyone else who's ever lived. The virgin birth is God's way of showing a watching world that this Jesus is no ordinary bloke, that he is God's son. Now, that's not all that we learn about the identity of this baby. Look again at verses 32 and 33. The angel tells Mary that God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will, will never end. Uh, like most people in this room, I, I spent my entire life with there being uh, only one monarch, one British monarch that I ever knew, Queen Elizabeth. She was the longest reigning British monarch, uh, reigned for 70 years until last year, uh, eclipsing the previous longest reign of Queen Victoria's 63 years. And uh, maybe you remember around the time of her death that there was a lot of discussion about how it really did feel like this was a, a forever reign for a monarch. It had defined a whole generation. Millions, billions of people knew nothing but her reign from their birth. But as you know, her reign didn't last forever. 2022, she died at age 90, no, 90, 96, I think, 96. And uh, now we don't sing God Save the Queen. Now we don't expect 100th birthday cards from Queen Elizabeth. King Charles is the king. Yet here is a promise that Mary's son will be a monarch whose reign will never end. Now, what's going on here? What is the angel referring to? Well, he's referring back to some promises made in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 7, some massive promises that God made to King David, promises that for King David, one of his descendants one day would sit on the throne of the universe and rule forever, a kingdom that knows no end. This king would rule over all people in perfect love forever. It's an immense promise that God made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And in fact, the Bible is really all about that king that is promised to King David hundreds of years earlier. The Bible points forward to a king who is going to rule in perfect justice and righteousness, a king who would bring hope and peace, who would protect and love and care for his citizens perfectly, a king who would fix our biggest problems, namely reconciling us back to God, 
and fixing our broken relationship with him, even at great cost to himself. This king would bring eternal life for all who believe in him. He would be a loving, generous and gracious king whose rule would extend over the nations forever. That's the king that the Bible points to and that's the king that Mary is told is going to be growing in her womb. That's the king Mary's been waiting for. Doesn't that sound like the kind of leader that we would want to lead us as well? But it had been hundreds of years since that promise had been made to David, and it didn't look like Israel's situation was getting any better. This king hadn't turned up, despite God's promises, until this first Christmas. And so when God tells Mary that the baby she's going to bear is going to be the king that he had promised all those centuries before, then heaven's bells are ringing because this is God declaring that he is keeping his promises. The king who will reign forever is about to arrive. And so these remarkable words, they have a universal significance, not just for this teenage girl in this nothing town in the middle of nowhere, significance for us too that from her would come God's forever king. God was keeping his promises. That's the first thing to note in this story. The second thing to note is that the birth of this baby means then that favour is being bestowed. Favour is being bestowed. Now, we already heard a little bit there about what the expectation was of this king's arrival, that he was going to come and bestow favour to all humanity. But look again and notice the way that the angel addresses Mary in verse 28. He says, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. And then again in verse 30, he says that she has found favour with God. And he begs the question, well, why is Mary being favoured here. What is it that drew God's attention to her out of all the young women in Israel at the time? Why Mary? Why did she receive this honour, the greatest honour that any human being has ever received, to bear the Son of God? Why her? She was a nobody from a nowhere town. The simple but significant answer is that God favoured Mary because he favoured Mary, that he loved her because he loved her. Out of his sovereign love, he chose Mary. She had done nothing to deserve God's favour, but he gave it to her regardless. And that is, in fact, what God does all the way throughout the Bible. Why is it that God creates humanity in the first place? It's not out of some need that God has. It's because he wants to show favour to others. Why is it that God calls a nation for himself in the first place? You know, Israel didn't exist until God said that it must. Why? Because he wanted to show favour. Why does God call Abraham to be the father of that nation? It's not because of any merit on Abraham's behalf, simply out of favour. Why did God choose David, the eighth son of a sheep farmer, to be Israel's greatest king and the foreshadower of Jesus himself? It was nothing but God's own favour. And that, friends, is really important to us 
Because if we are going to benefit from the arrival of this king, it's not going to be because we somehow earn God's blessing. It'll be because of God's sovereign, loving choice to show us favour that we don't deserve. And did you notice there in verse 29 that Mary is greatly troubled? And it's not because, you know, an angel has just shown up on her doorstep. That's not what's troubling her. It's not even the news that she's going to be pregnant that troubles her. No, she's troubled by the angel telling her that she's highly favoured of God. Now, why, why would that trouble her? Do you consider that? Why is she troubled knowing that she is favoured by God? It's because Mary understands something very important. She understands that when the favour of God lands in your life, nothing is ever the same again. God's favour, you see, it is intrusive in the best way possible. It is interruptive. It is immense. And that can either be troubling to you in a way that kind of makes you run the opposite direction and get as far away from it as possible, or it can be troubling to you in the way that a defibrillator is troubling to a heart that has stopped beating, you see. That is what's going on with the Christmas story. The Son of God made flesh. God's long-promised king arriving to begin his reign, that will either send you running for the hills or it will wake you from your slumber. Now, how does Mary respond to all of this? I wonder how you would have responded to all of this. I think these days we are probably so tired of all the spin and the false advertising and being let down by leader after leader that we probably would have responded with cynicism and skepticism, but not Mary. For Mary, this means that her hope is restored. And that's the third thing we see in this story, hope restored. Have a look there at the end of this story in verse 38, what Mary says. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Now, Mary is smart enough to know that this news about uh, an impending pregnancy, when she is pledged to be married to Joseph, that that news is going to cause some issues in her life. She's smart enough to realise that. And yet... She receives this announcement with gladness. She believes. She has complete faith that with God, nothing is impossible. Uh, That what God says, he has the complete power to do. That this baby who's coming really is going to be God's forever king. And she has hope because of it. And and we're going to see in the next part of the passage next week that she's overflowing with joy too. Now, Mary describes herself there as the Lord's servant, and that word servant can also be translated slave. Now, uh, if you consider motherhood for a moment, uh, every loving mother, in some sense, gives their life for their children. You know, mothering is costly. It is demanding. uh, It requires selflessness. But, you know, aside from those occasional moments of of exasperation where you say, what am I, your servant? You know, do, do I look like I work here? Aside from those things, mothering is not servitude. And yet, Mary, in becoming a mother, offers herself as a servant of the Lord. Even before this baby is conceived in her, she's committed her life to him in service. She could see that this child would be the one that we've all been longing for. 
And I think you have to ask the question, well, is that a bad decision, Mary? Is that hope that you've got grounded? Or are you just being a, you know, a naive teenage girl who doesn't know what she's thinking at this point? Uh, I've been slowly reading my way through Barack Obama's uh, second autobiography this year, and I've just read the part about his first inauguration in 2009. Do you remember that back in 2009, the, the scenes of his inauguration when hundreds of thousands of people showed up to watch him be sworn in at the US Capitol building? It had been a, a very heated election to get to that point. And there was this palpable sense as we watched that, you know, in a sense, here he is, <laughs> the, the one that we've been waiting for. He's arrived and he's going to fix everything. Maybe he's going to solve all of America's problems. Maybe he's going to solve all of the world's problems. Who knows? But uh, you know, whether you think Barack Obama was a good president or not, you would have to say that no one could live up to those expectations, could they? When it comes to the expectations on this king who's arriving... Is, is Mary's hype going to be short-lived too? Well, you you kind of need to, to see for yourself, don't you? To decide for yourself. You know, as you read on in Luke's Gospel, you soon actually see that Mary's faith and hope was not the least bit unwarranted. Uh, Luke, the historian, goes on to say that Mary does get pregnant uh, before being with Joseph and that she does have a baby who she names Jesus and that this Jesus walked around, he was a real skin and bone human being, but that he also did miraculous things, signs that he wasn't an ordinary guy, signs that hinted at his divinity. Uh, Luke records that this Jesus healed lepers, that he controlled nature by calming the storms, that he even... Uh, demonstrated that he really is the son of God by bringing people back to life. He showed signs too uh, to prove that he was the king that they'd been waiting for. He showed what his kingdom would be like, a place of peace with no pain, no suffering, no hurt. He showed that he would be a sacrificial king uh, dying on a cross in our place. And yet Luke tells us that this Jesus didn't stay dead. Luke writes of how Jesus defeated death and rose from the grave and now the Bible testifies that Jesus is alive and that he reigns forever, even today, which means that there is hope still for all who trust in him, hope of everlasting life in his kingdom with him forever. Now, we do live in a world that seems hopeless much of the time and we do long for it to be fixed but to a nobody girl in a nowhere town, in a seemingly hopeless world, uh, God delivers a message that his son, the forever king, is on the way. And that's a message which Mary believed and which brought her great hope and joy. And I want to say this morning that Mary's response can be our response too. Faith in what God says, which leads to unshakable hope. We don't have to bury our heads in the sand this Christmas. We don't have to hide from the TV news. We don't have to wistfully pray, pray, pray to an unknown deity for some glimmer of hope. No, God has sent his son Jesus, the true and lasting king, into the world. He is alive and he reigns forever, which means certain unshakable hope for all who will trust in him. Now, Mary was, was no religious guru. She, she wasn't special. She was just a teenage girl living in a crummy town in the back end of nowhere. But she believed God's promise. 
She put her faith in the king and she found hope. Now, maybe as you sit here this morning, you've heard this news about Jesus before, or maybe as you sit here, this is the first time you've really ever heard this news about Jesus. Either way, I hope you can see that this news about this king has got to be worth investigating, doesn't it? It might sound unbelievable to our cynical Australian ears. We might respond with the old adage, well, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But let me ask you, where else are you going to turn this Christmas? In a world that feels hopeless, news of a king who brings lasting hope and joy to those who follow him, that sounds like something worth exploring, I think. And so can I encourage you to... Take the time over the next few weeks to consider this Jesus. Maybe start a conversation with somebody this morning. Find out more and find hope in him this Christmas. Let me pray. Loving God, we thank you that you have shown favour to our world. Not because of anything that we've done to deserve it, but simply because you are a loving and kind God. Thank you for sending your son to be our king, the king we so desperately need. Thank you that he is alive even today and that he offers a sure and certain hope for all who will trust in him. Would you help us to do that this morning?